cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Schein. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, Cyber Colleagues. I'm Mark Schein, National Co-Chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence here at Marsh McClinton Agency. And today we have a true cyber celebrity with us, Stu Pedensky. Thanks for joining, Stu. Thank you, Mark. This is awesome. So, Stu, my, my first question to you is, you know, growing up in the Northeast, a Jersey boy, how, do you, how did somebody, you know, growing up in the Northeast really end up being the practice leader from a data and privacy standpoint at one of the more prestigious law firms being Fisher Broyles? Thank you very much. Um, well, I didn't go to s- law school to do cyber law, if, if that's what you're asking. It, it was an sh- interesting journey, but it was an organic journey on ha- how I, I got here. I came up the ranks at an insurance law firm. It was a great place to ha- have a career and, and get a lot of great practical experience in practicing law. I sort of stumbled into cyber in, in, in two different roads and both sort of led me to, to cyber insurance as a sort of area to, to add value in the, in the legal context. The first one was I had um, was sort of young at the firm and one of the senior partners was doing a chapter in a book on insurance coverage for, for technology. And so I got to, to learn sort of because I was responsible for doing his work for him. I, I got to learn a lot about uh, technology insurance and sort of the history of, of how technology assets were insured and what the issues were. And that was very coincidentally, the same time that cyber insurance was developing as a, as a as a product, and at the same time as that was, I was really an architects and engineer liability lawyer, and I had some opportunities to do tech you know uh, defense claims because at the time the same folks in the insurance world that were handling claims for A and E were also handling claims for tech you know, and so it was sort of. Again, they, they knew me from there, so I got those cases, and I, I, was, I liked them a lot. I thought they were really interesting, and the insurers were very smart, and the issues were challenging. And it, I felt like the, ish, the, the stakeholders were a little bit more pragmatic than in, in some of the more bridges and tunnels type cases that I was doing for A&E. And I really liked it, so I took every opportunity to, to sort of stay with that techie and o world, and I still do quite a bit of techie and o defense. I love it. Um, then, so I had the two things sort of going at the same time, the sort of the cyber insurance study and the tech, you know, practical experience. And then the insurance world sort of married those two. I had nothing to do with it, but then tech, you know, and cyber became sort of the same, the same product. And that was like around 2011, which was when I, I also, uh, started, uh, getting more active in that, that book writing. I got to meet some of the folks from the larger carriers that were responsible for the products. They wanted me to talk about them in the book. They, um, I got to be on some panels. I sort of got my, you know, I sort of got my first opportunity to do a data breach counseling uh, opportunity. And then that led to a second one and then a third one. And then it really became the area of my, of my focus. And, and now it's almost hundred percent of what we do. So between Techino and the cyber, meaning the you know the incident response and, and some of those other issues, that's 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 all we we do here now, and it's awesome. 
Just do. I mean, you you know, you've really been in basically almost since uh, the get go in the evolution of the program. I mean, you've seen it expand so much over the past ten years. What are some of the biggest changes that you've seen within cyber risk, cyber insurance in the past decade? Well, you know, so have you, Marn? So we we've uh, sort of watched that together, and uh, I guess from a from a wholesale perspective, in the beginning, it was explaining to people what what it was we were talking about. Um, the concept of data breach was was new. Uh, tech ENO was rudimentally rudimentarily understood, I think. Um, and some of the the newer issues that we're dealing with, as far as digital extortion, um, the business interruption that arises out of the the digital extortion and other cyber events, that was really all in their sort of you know baby stages and, and coming to coming to life. But now, this is a well known peril. Everyone knows about it. The, the actual events themselves are a lot of times front page news or, or they're just in the news media in general. There's an entire ecosystem within the insurance industry, as you know, uh, that's dedicated to cyber. Um, this, the vendors that, are, that, are, that service the cyber insurance industry have a particular focus on cyber insurance and, and the issues are well known. And so it's become a business peril and a that, that the insurance world services, you know, regularly. And now it's not obviously not just my law firm, but a number of law firms that really have practice groups dedicated um, to cyber. Uh, then in addition, you know, cyber is very closely related to, though not exactly with privacy. And so there's always corporate privacy law that's been around for, you know, hundred years. And the corporate privacy is now just very interrelated with the security aspect of it, although they're different. So, I would say that that sort of sophistication um, has really been the the uh, the maturity. That's really been the the biggest changes that I've seen. Um, it, ransomware, uh, digital extortion itself has evolved tremendously. Even in the last year or two, I'm sure everyone I've seen other episodes where you all have talked about this, but um, it's it's consistent with our experience here. I mean, I think almost almost every ransomware case we had in 2020. And then the first quarter of this year involves data exfiltration, almost every one. Uh, it didn't used to be like that at all. The extortions themselves are far larger now. Um, and so, and the the threat actors themselves are far more emboldened. You know, we, at Fisher Bros, we take a very activist role in, in the threat actor money service business part of the transaction, if that's the, if, if, if it's warranted by the incident response. And we think, the communications are far more sophisticated. A lot of times you, you almost have to go to like little mini court um, and you're, you're proving something to these threat actors by producing documents for them and trying to convince them that you have no money, uh, things like that. So there's, there's a very, um, it's just far more sophisticated than it, than it ever was. And so I think those are the most exciting changes. We're in more industry sectors now than ever before. You know, then in the, in the beginning, all my first matters were really all PCI related. I thought that was what it was all going to be. I mean, I had PFIs on the on the Rolodex and everything, and we were, we were sort of very comfortable in that that ecosystem. And then they then I just their emphasis has shifted so much away from PCI that um, it's it's it hasn't really been a, f a big focus of, of us anymore. Instead, we're landing more, I guess, in the, where other law, law from from what I understand, speaking to my competitors, that they are s s experiencing similar. For us here at Fisher Bros, we really deal a lot with tech technology services. Uh, public entity work, higher education, dealing with tons of professional services. That's always really been our bread and butter, some professional services, lawyers, accountants, tech technologists, of course, that's a, a big practice of ours. 
um, and that's really where we're saying we do are we are we do have the infrastructure the critical infrastructure case. Uh, we do have retail still, um, but it's really I guess those other industry sectors where we're seeing most of our work. Just dude, when when clients are coming to you, when they're bringing new matters to you, is it more around a privacy issue that they're having? Is it more about we just had a data incident, we need to figure out what to do? Or is it general business advice about how do we leverage our cyber maturity to uh, 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 work with our vendors and, and work with the contracts and things like that? We here at Fisher Royals, we do it all. So okay. we, um, for, for uh, with, with respect to the cyber insurance part of it, it's mostly the, in the claim incident response perspective. It's someone has had an incident they bring you the incident and our job is to help identify the legal issues that arise out of that incident, give recommendations and try to get them resolved, try to get them to where they need to be. Uh, that's the sort of incident response and, and how sophisticated that process is really depends on what the facts that are presented. Um, but we love corporate privacy here at Fisher Burroughs. We have a really deep bench of corporate privacy lawyers. So we do it all. We do all the website compliance, the uh, terms and conditions, the privacy policies. We do the employee handbooks, all of the pro, you know, the, the proactive corporate privacy governance type of work. And we have, um, you know, we, we do that across the board and, and GDPR and the GDPR issues as well. Uh, and then with respect to, um, you know, I, I guess as far as uh, the relationship between privacy and security, we make sure our clients are educated about that. There is a very big connection between those two, but they are separate. A lot of times I use the metaphor of a parallel line and I just say, you know, let's pick security on this side of the line and privacy on this side of the line. You know, you always sort of start with security, not always, but you know, there's usually an event that involves security and you're trying to figure out, did it, did it, are you gonna slide over to that other side of the parallel line? Um, and are there, are there privacy concerns? Privacy concerns necessarily involve third parties. So as soon as you bring third parties into the situation, the risk is becomes a little much more dynamic and you have a lot more moving parts. You have to worry about a lot more. So a lot of times I describe it as we're trying to keep you on that, that security side of the, of the parallel line. Uh, when I say, I keep saying parallel line. I mean, horizontal line. I'm sorry. I keep saying the word, wrong word. That's so terrible. This is going to go on the internet. Um, no, it's a, it's a horizontal line and on the one side, on the other side. So we try to keep them on the security side, but sometimes we're presented, for example, with an inadvertent disclosure or a, a leaky, uh, a leaky server or, you know, lost device, you're presented with a privacy problem first. And so you have to back into and sort of figure out what the other issues are. Every case is different. And that's why this is such an awesome practice because it really is sort of a new one. Every time you get it, e even in, even in like, a, you know, the business email compromise, which is probably the most routine matter that we get, you know, is a business email compromise, even in those, they're so dynamic, you know, the, the issues are, you know, every system's different. And sometimes the email is connected to another, another application, or sometimes uh, there's something quirky about what the threat actor did or didn't do. And in, in in once they had unauthorized access. So uh, I, I, I really, it's, um, I, I, I love coming to work every day. So, so you had mentioned uh, higher education earlier it was, uh, you know, an area of practice. Um, can you just talk about some of the challenges higher education is having around cyber risk right now? Yeah, yeah. You, you, when we were talking about what, uh, you know, things to talk about, I, I mentioned that we, we had a big surge in 2019, 2020 um, on the, the cases that we have involved involving higher education, usually mostly community colleges or state schools. And the issue there is a number of things. Number one is 
the diversity of data. They have so many different kinds of data at a school or a university. It's not just uh, PII, like you know, protected information, but there's student data, which is you know the thing that their mo their privacy officers are really mostly trained on is is the the idea of student data and and uh, how that gets treated, especially by the law. Then there's of course they do have PCI data because they usually run you know there's a college store or there's you know a, a dining hall that has to you know run credit cards or whatever. So they have those sort of there's physical security concerns that they have. Um, there's PHI because a lot of them have um, either medical relationships or they are a medical school themselves or there's just medical records that are floating about and so there there's PHI. So the, it's the diversity of data that you're dealing with during the COVID-19 pandemic. The schools were very active. <laughs> you know, they had to be on how they were managing the pandemic and what their policies were going to be with contact and letting students do in-person events and things like that. And there was a lot of records that were created involving COVID-19 and, and the students or the faculty. And so there were a lot of challenges that accompanied that uh, dealing with the privacy issues and, and the concerns. So number one is diversity of data that the schools have. I would say the second thing is the technology. Learning sciences is a huge area of tech technology, um, especially, again, it, it received a huge boost from the COVID-19 work from home uh, orders and, and the stay at home orders that went out when the, especially this, the community colleges had to send their students home, they had to provide them with learning tools. And so some of the learning science companies that were issuing new products or even older products were suddenly that maybe they had to deal with scale issues. So maybe a school was, you know, lightly using, you know, ABC Corp's, you know, learning tool, but then they had to deploy it to 1500 people or to, you know, 5,000 people all at once. And, and then that, that uh, there was accompanying tech issues, privacy issues, and um, that, that we saw a big change in that. And so the nature of the, of the technology that schools use, and then of course they use normal, um, you know, O365, or they use just normal um, sales tools or administrative, you know, out of the box type of programs that all have issues. So there's, it's, it's the type of data they have, the type of technology that they use. And then of course it's the, um, I think it's the nature of schools themselves. Uh, it doesn't shock anybody that teachers and professors are usually very intelligent. <laughs> They're usually very educated. So they know a lot about issues or they know how to research a lot of issues. And so they, they have opinions about how to handle situations. So if you bring them as, as outside counsel, you know, I have to be very, um, I think part of my job is to have a very high emotional intelligence, be able to read the room a little bit and see, you know, where does the client want to go what does the client feel is important? What are those issues? And I, I think I, it's, it's a bit of a slower analysis because they're very deliberate. In my experience, I, I mean, I'm, I'm generalizing a, a category of people, but it, it's, um, I find that educators, you know, they're educators first and they're business people second. And so some of the sort of the faster moving analysis that would happen in, in a, maybe a sure. law firm or a, or, or a manufacturing company it slows down when it comes to the comes to higher education, so I think that's that's another area where I think there's a um, some some unique uniqueness to handling those types of claims. I'm sure I can think of some more. So 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 Stu, um, you know we, we've seen this obviously we've we've been out of the office for about a year now, and you know we we're talking about new technologies. Um, how does this remote learning 
uh, effect from a privacy standpoint. You know, if a professor's uh, giving a lecture and, you know, somebody's uh, uh, hearing what they're saying, is there any type of confidentiality that the school she needs to be aware of? Or is there anything that should be contemplated? Or should they just reach out to you and, and have a one-off conversation? Um, well, most schools do have general counsel and or privacy officers, you know, that are, are responsible for sort of thinking through those those types of issues. Privacy by design as a concept does apply in higher education. They definitely, you know, the law does expect uh, colleges and, and schools to think through these issues and have a culture of privacy. So that should uh, apply across the board. Uh, with respect to the privacy issues and, and how, how, do the, how do those get wrestled with, uh, I think schools do need to sort of self audit and see um, uh, are your policies in, in, your, in your student handbook match with what you are technically technologically able to deliver? Um, is it compliant with the law? Every state has a, a sort of a nuanced law on what you can record and not record and what consent is going to be needed and, and whether uh, consent is required um, by all parties or one party and that's all different but what the school should do is consider those issues when they create their policy and to draft a policy that is is able to be enforced that's consistent with the law and 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 serves the larger culture of privacy so that um, and then same should apply for students and faculty sometimes it's the faculty that are the most difficult because again it, there's they're educators, they're academics, and so they sort of wrestle with these issues. It's not uncommon that we, if there's, you know, a lot of times it's sort of the simple ones that get to school, the inadvertent disclosure. Uh, you know, we had somebody who was in a leadership position at, at a community college who sent around some very sensitive PHI, very innocently. Uh, the individual really had no idea that anything had happened, anything, you know, inappropriate had happened. We, we sort of brought it to the attention it was a big learning experience, but it, it nevertheless was something we had to deal with. And one of the peoples who was impacted was, an, was a faculty member, an educator, and she was very difficult. It, it, was, it was a tough situation. Her, she felt very strongly her privacy was affected. Um, she felt damaged and, and she was an employee. So it wasn't, you could sort of you know, brush it off. You had, there was a very white glove sort of uh, approach to, to pacifying the, the upset employee. So it's, it's um, there's a lot of sensitivities there, I think that are different than some, some other cases. Sure. So Stu, we've covered a tremendous amount of information today from the history of cyber, you know, your, your background, higher education. Is there anything that we missed before I let you go? Oh, um, I could do this all day long, man. <laughs> the, uh, this is great. I appreciate the opportunity. I, since I do have the opportunity, um, I would like to say just a, a little bit something about how we do things here at Fisher Burroughs. It's a little different than, um, than some of the other law firms that are in this space. It really has to do with the unique nature of Fisher Broyles. Fisher Broyles is the world's first and largest non-traditional law firm. We're in 22 cities in the U.S., we're in London, and we're growing. And what makes us non-traditional are a couple of things, but I thought a couple of them important to highlight. Number one is we have no brick and mortar space and we never did since our very founding. So when the COVID-19 thing happened, aside from the personal upheaval that we all experienced, we were pretty much business as usual when it came to our practice. And we found that now when we hear the whole, well, what should, because our clients are coming to us and saying, well, what, what's it, what do we need to go back to work to, uh, to reopen the office? And, and we sort of sit back and, and sort of, you know, s s smile a little bit 
um, knowing that we never had that problem because that's just not in our DNA. Uh, sure. We all of that overhead that other law firms uh, have to have to lay out uh, for offices and libraries and conference rooms, etc. We skip all of that and we pass the savings directly onto our clients. So that's number one. And the second way that we really are non-traditional is we do not hire any inexperienced associate lawyers. The only person who handles a data breach claim, a ransomware claim, or any sort of uh, you know business, any sort of cyber matter, is an experienced partner who has at the minimum eight years experience in a large law firm, corporate in-house, or the government. And uh, we we believe that that's really the only appropriate person to handle cyber situations. And I think that makes us different than some of our um, fellow law firms that are in this space. And I hope that it was worthwhile uh, for me to explain that to your audience. So I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely, Stu. Um, you know, I appreciate the background and history that you've shared and appreciate you coming on the show and chatting cyber with us. Thank you, man. Do it again soon. Excellent. Thank you.